0: If you could please open to Mark chapter 6, and we will be reading from the beginning of Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Father, I ask that this morning, Lord, You would open our minds through Your Word so that it also might open our hearts, Lord, and would go down into our inmost being. That You would give us knowledge and understanding and wisdom so that we may know Christ all the better. To see the precious truths in Your Word Your Word that is living and active and judging the thoughts and the attitudes, the intentions of our hearts. So cause me, I pray, to speak as the apostles would have me want to reveal your Word this morning. Amen. Okay. The humanity of Christ. That is the focus of the sermon today. Jesus was and is fully God, but also, since his incarnation, fully human. Now, for we here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, this is surely not news to you. But during studying on this topic, it seemed that maybe we do sometimes give limited thought to Christ's humanity. So what we are going to hear today is likely not going to be startling new news, but rather just reminding us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God, divine in every possible way, but also He is a true, complete human person in every way, though importantly, without sin like us. So, I will speak like Peter did in his letter when he said, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them. Now, speaking about these things can be quite dangerous. One must be very careful when speaking of the humanity of Christ. We can easily get into trouble and start speaking about the mixture of his two natures, which is not true at all. These are two totally distinct natures, human and divine in one person, Jesus Christ. Fully divine at all times, from eternity past, during his time on earth, and continuing forward into eternity. No gaps, no handoffs of his divinity to the Father. Even when a baby, he was still, as the scripture says, upholding the universe by the word of his power, and still true that in him all things hold together. Don't ask me to explain exactly how that works. Like some things in Christology, the study of Jesus Christ we cannot fully understand every detail and working of how Jesus is both God and human in one person. As Wayne Grudem says, it is the most profound mystery in all the universe. A favorite theologian, A.W. Pink, who's described as a man who was known for his staunchly Calvinist and Puritan-like teachings, wrote in the 1920s, It is both useless and impious for any man to attempt an explanation of the wondrous and unique person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, of course, he wrote extensively in an attempt to do just that, as many have and continue to do. This is because we can and must be certain of many fundamental scriptural facts that are at the core of our faith. So to begin with, we will quote a portion of the Creed of Chalcedon from A.D. 451, which was written as a response to certain heretical views concerning the nature of Christ. This creed is basic, orthodox, Christian doctrine we agree to today when it comes to the two natures of Christ, human and divine. Seventy words from the creed. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person And one subsistence, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one, and the self same Son, and only begotten God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the belief that Jesus Christ is God, believing the deity of Christ, is exceedingly important. What is important to every human being? That they be saved. So, if you will notice, several false religions and heresies deny the deity of Christ. And, of course, Satan is so smart and clever that he focuses on promoting that denial. If the deity of Christ is denied by a religious follower, then they can't be saved. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, these are perfect examples of denying his deity and yet they use much of the Bible to live their lives. He's sort of just a good prophet. But we, Bible-believing Christians, guard carefully against that. Yet we must watch our flank, so to speak, that we not let anyone deny the humanity of Christ either, since it is also crucially important to our faith and salvation. Pastor Joe just finished showing us the importance of that truth throughout 1 John. Things like... Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. A perfect man, fully human, a sinless life lived, our great high priest completing the work his father gave him to do on earth, then taking our penalty for sin as a man, dying, giving up his human spirit in death just like we humans will someday. Not at all meaning with that type of suffering. So, three main points in reviewing today the humanity of Christ. Firstly, we should be in awe of his walk as a man. The extent of his suffering, not just on the cross, no, but each day living his sinless life. Secondly, seeing his examples as a human to follow. Saying, if he can do it that way, I'll make it my life's goal to do it that way. Not saying I'll be like God, but he's the superhero I want to be like. And thirdly, if we see and believe the first two from the scriptures, then we can go to him, the living Christ, to help us in our time of need. How might we do that? Joe explained it nicely in another sermon saying, Ask this way, help, 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 help all the time. Now in our text this morning, this is not the typical example of pointing to the humanity of Christ in the scriptures, which is often done by going to Hebrews, which we will go to later. We will not be going through the passage in an expository way as is the usual custom here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, but in these verses we see several points about his humanity revealed. Verse 1 begins by saying, he went to his hometown, which of course is Nazareth. And in the synagogue there, it says he began to teach. And then the townspeople say several things about him by asking five questions. With these questions being asked in their, as it says in verse 2, in their astonishment. One question, how could he have such wisdom? Possibly Jesus was even saying something indicating his Messiahship, as he did in a similar passage in Luke Preaching to these same people. Another question How does Jesus do these miracles? They clearly knew of his miracles. Well, why this astonishment at all this? Verse 3 Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? This is just plain old Jesus, the local carpenter. Son of Mary, one of several brothers and sisters, isn't this just a regular guy? Besides this, they would be offended that their expectations of the Messiah were not anything like this regular kid from the neighborhood they saw grow up. So what does this confirm to us about his humanity? That it was fully on display and functioning all the time until he was 30 years old. Nothing to cause him to think he was the Messiah. No miracles performed at school or in the carpenter shop. His humanity, a perfect veil over his divine nature. And John reports in his gospel, for not even his brothers believed in him. His divine nature is there, but until he began his ministry, only his humanity was on vivid display. So was there no hint that Jesus was as the scripture says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel? That's what Simeon said when Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Well, Jesus is born of a virgin, grows up playing with his brothers and sisters, surely doing everything a Jewish boy does in the tiny town of Nazareth, a town of about only 500 people where everyone knows everything everyone's business. Then he shows up at the temple in Jerusalem at age 12 speaking with the teachers so that they were amazed at his understanding and answers. So he grew in wisdom. His human brain developed learning to talk, to walk, to read, and to understand. Gain knowledge, become wise. But there's no library for Jesus to go to, to browse through various writings to feed his appetite for wisdom. But there is this synagogue we read about in today's passage. Now, in the Jewish culture, there was much, much, very much verbal transmission of the scriptures. A great deal of memorization that we, particularly with all the modern technology, can't conceive of. So, when one reads about Jesus at age 12, him being in the temple knowing how to engage with the teachers, one might think God zapped him with knowledge. And we can certainly believe there is something extraordinary about this human person, Jesus, but he was, we expect, living as a regular Jewish boy. And if so, he would have begun his schooling in the synagogue at age five and there learned virtually nothing but the Torah, his entire schooling based on the Old Testament. Children in Israel were brought up to learn by rote from an early age. As children, they were made to learn very long passages by heart. So then, even in the normal speech of the time, men and women would echo scriptures. Even the historian Josephus, apparently not a believer, wrote, It is in the scriptures that the finest knowledge is to be found and the source of happiness. What did Paul say to young Timothy? How from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings. And even though women would not necessarily be schooled as well, this is 2,000 years ago, consider Jesus' mother Mary. When pregnant with Jesus, she spontaneously starts praising God when visiting Elizabeth. That's called the Magnificat. This young teenage girl, her spontaneous Magnificat is jam-packed full of Old Testament references. God my Savior, mighty deeds with His arm, lifted up the humble, filled them with good, merciful to Abraham and his descendants. That's the kind of mom that Jesus grew up with. And Joseph, the dad, was certainly no slouch either, described to us as a righteous man, no doubt fulfilling the command in Deuteronomy. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So then, Jesus would, as a boy, with a human mind, have been thoroughly taught the scriptures. And just as an aside to wonder what he was thinking when he first read Isaiah 53, realizing it was all about him. So, Jesus begins his ministry. Baptized in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit descending on him, the Father speaking aloud to praise him. Now, let's notice something very important. What does it say about him as he begins? He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is already filled with the Spirit prior to his baptism. But in Luke 4, he goes forth in his humanity, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Listen. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And after that, in Luke, he goes to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and says to those in attendance, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Anointed him for what? To do all that the Father called him to do. Proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives and oppressed, recovering of sight to the blind. In Acts, when Peter is recalling Jesus' ministry here on Earth, says, "God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power." He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him." So it appears this human, as Paul simply describes at one point, the man Christ Jesus, was empowered in his humanity by the Holy Spirit. And you too, as a human, born-again believer, are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Recall the very last thing Jesus said to his disciples, recorded in Acts, before being taken up to heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Paul says to you, believer, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe that's the power to live in the obedience that comes from faith Now, let's be clear and careful the person jesus christ has a human and divine nature but let's understand this very important point there is no cheating going on with jesus there is no mixture of his natures when he's feeling a bit overwhelmed with his weakness as a fellow human being, he doesn't reach in and grab a little of his divinity to make life easier, to otherwise risk, resist a temptation. Is he manifesting divinity all the time? Yes, of course he is. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, knew the woman had five husbands, knew Peter was going to ask about the two drachma tax, knew the man's son will live knew what the Pharisees were thinking, knew who would betray him, knew Peter would deny him, knew Peter really did love him, knew who really did not believe in him. When he does miracles, is it the Holy Spirit working in him? Well, when the Pharisees saw a man healed by Jesus, they said, it's the devil in him that's doing it. But Jesus said to them, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So again, Jesus is living his sinless life by exercising his human will to do so, empowered by spirit. The devil said to him in the wilderness, if you are the son of God, well, yes, true, Jesus is divine, then turn this stone into bread. Well, yes, he is God and could have done so if he'd improperly use his divinity. But he refused and endured in his humanity. Jesus did walk on the water. Yes, he calmed the storm. Yes, he fed 4,000 and he fed 5,000. But let's be clear. What do we know is true about our high priest? This is what Hebrews says about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He's got to experience a sinless, perfect life by living in the weakness of human flesh, forgoing sin at every turn by His human will and the Holy Spirit's power in Him in order to be our substitutionary sacrifice. He is the sinless Lamb of God, the only completely innocent human who even though possessing true human frailty and temptations, arrived at his destination of the cross in that state of sinless human perfection by persevering, resisting, and battling sin by his human will in the power of the Holy Spirit, never once having called up, conjured up, reached back, leaned on his divinity in any way that would disqualify him from being our high priest who could, would, and did sacrifice himself for us. He is the second sinless perfect Adam. There may be a glow around that picture of Jesus in the church sanctuary. And yes, he is God, but the Son of God endured his human life and suffering without finessing things to bring in some disqualifying divinity when his temptations and weaknesses were just too much for him. Hopefully, this type of lifestyle sounds familiar. For us believers, we're not sinless, we're not God, but we live by our human will and the power of the Holy Spirit to walk the narrow path the same way that Jesus did. Now what else does Hebrews say about our great high priest with respect to his experience of being a human and its result? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In every respect tempted as we are. Of course, Jesus does not have a sinful nature as we do in the midst of our temptations. And somebody might say, well, he's God, so it's really not too tough for him. But that's a misunderstanding of temptations and sinning. How can we understand something about temptation? How about this check? One, how often are you tempted? Two, how intensely are you tempted? And three, for how long are you tempted? For Jesus, the answers are all the time, very intensely, and all the live long day, yet never once failing. Was the devil tempting Jesus? He started right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. First thing trying to tempt Jesus to sin. And then, as it says, leaving him until an opportune time. Was he tempting Jesus throughout his ministry? Can't be certain how often, but the enemy surely wanted to foil the plans of God. For us, we've all been tempted and we fall short. We are tempted and then we often give in, though obviously not always. If you are strongly tempted for a bit, then give in shortly, your temptation story would get a roll of the eyes. If you are tempted and resist and resist and resist, you've experienced some severe temptation. But Jesus resisted permanently his entire life in everything. So let's have C.S. Lewis describe what may be counterintuitive. That he who doesn't sin knows temptation the best. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. the only complete realist. So, how does the Bible summarize all this lifelong struggle the man Christ Jesus went through? learned or experienced obedience in experience human suffering. Not just ultimately at Gethsemane, but his entire temptation battling sinless life. And so he completed his work to be the perfect source of eternal salvation for those who believe and obey. Now if we believe that Jesus could have sinned, but battled against temptations and resisted, then we would surely be encouraged to do the same. But I would argue, as many do, that Jesus could not sin. Yet, we can still be just as encouraged by his sinless life. This inability to sin is called impeccability, and the totality of the scriptures, I believe, show that Jesus could not sin. If he sinned, the guilt would not stain just his human nature, but also his divine nature and that cannot happen to God, it's impossible. Being hungry is a human only experience with nothing like it in Jesus' divine nature. So Jesus is hungry and he eats. No need to consider its impact on his divine nature. But sin is a moral action that would impact his human nature and his divine nature. So Jesus could not sin and he knew he could not sin. And given that truth, one might say, okay, well, Jesus did not sin, but then he's God, and he knew he couldn't sin, so how's that supposed to motivate me to battle sin? Well, let me try to give an analogy. Not my own. I'm borrowing this from Bruce Ware, a professor of theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Imagine you are a well-trained, long-distance swimmer. You are going to do as some remarkably determined people do and swim across the ocean from Palos Verdes to Catalina Island. Of course, it is going to be very difficult and try you to the point of exhaustion and drowning. But anyone who does this has a boat following him, fully loaded with rescue equipment. If anything were to go wrong, the swimmer knows that he could be quickly rescued as the boat stays near him. He can't drown. He gets in the water, swims across the ocean, and completes what he wanted to accomplish. He could have tired or cramped and begun to drown at any point. Now, was the fact that the boat was there take anything away from his completion of the challenge? No. He completed it entirely on his own with the ability and strength he had. He never once relied upon the boat, even though he knew it was there. Boat or no boat? It was a long, lonely, hard swim for 25 miles. That may not be the perfect analogy, but Jesus lived his complete, sinless human life without being rescued by his divinity, although he knew he could not sin. So, what was it like for Jesus, being a human, living his life of ministry, serving the Father, and serving those he came to 2,000 years ago? Well, besides the normal hunger thirst, tiredness, things that don't happen to God, there are other awful things that could happen to a human, but never to God. And according to Isaiah 53, these things did happen to the man, Christ Jesus, marred, deformed, afflicted, wounded, crushed, oppressed, slaughtered, stricken, died. And believer, these were all for your sake, and of course, one passage from John's gospel that brings out the true depth of his humanity, is raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Jesus knows he must do as the Father says and wait for Lazarus to decompose in the tomb. But also he knows this will tear at the hearts of his dear friends Mary and Martha, their brother dead and their miracle healing friend doing nothing. And then when Jesus does come, the emotions in him come to a head. When he saw the grief surrounding him and their weeping, Jesus too was troubled and wept. Those watching say, see how he loved him. He knows all will be filled with joy and amazement in just a few minutes when he raises Lazarus from the dead. But he is troubled by all the grief and the experience of seeing the suffering that comes from human death those made in his image those he himself created but only he amongst the crowd knows what is coming in just a few days his own death to conquer death itself so that we humans will no longer have to grieve without hope grieve yes but grieve knowing Jesus has ultimately overcome death for us who believe Jesus knows all this in his human intellect, yet his human emotions for those he loves well up in compassion, in anger at the death caused by sin, and well up in tears. This description of the event by one commentator says it beautifully. The central thought of John's Gospel is the Word was made flesh. And Jesus is for us the resurrection and the life Because he has been manifested to us not as an abstraction which the intellect only could receive, but as a person whom the heart can grasp and love, living a human life and knowing its sorrows. A God in tears has provoked the smile of the Stoic and the scorn of the unbeliever, but Christianity is not a gospel of self-sufficiency and its message is not merely to the human intellect. It is salvation offered for the whole man and for every man. And the sorrowing heart of humanity has never seen more clearly the divinity of the Son of Man than when it has seen His glory shining through His human tears. So then, as we said before, Reading from Hebrews, Jesus is the high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, having been tempted in every way as we human are, yet without sin. And what is this sympathizing the writer speaks of? Is Jesus' sympathy just that he knows about it and feels it? Well, yes, it is to be affected with the same feeling as another, but it's more. It's similar to compassion, Later in Hebrews, when speaking of those having great faith and being persecuted, the writer says, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property and had compassion on those in prison. That compassion they had is the same word used for sympathize. Jesus himself experienced some of that sympathy, that compassion coming directly from heaven. In this case, by angels sent to him in two very difficult moments. After 40 days of fasting and temptation, the word says, angels from heaven ministered to Jesus. And at Gethsemane too, at his greatest moment of human emotional trauma, it says angels came and strengthened him. Physically, somehow, probably, but also their presence, powerfully encouraging and comforting and strengthening him. What's an attempt at an analogy? Well, mothers... When you go to the hospital to help a new mom give birth, you're helping them some physically, but you're doing a whole lot of sympathizing, coaching, showing compassion and encouragement. You're doing something profound by your presence because you've been there, you know what it's like. And that presence, that sympathizing, that compassion helps give the new mom a strength to make it through. Jesus is able to do something profound when he sympathizes with us in our weakness and that is an excellent reason to draw near to him. So this sympathizing with us that Jesus does, having fully experienced humanity, is much more than him just knowing about it, if we will go to him with our weakness. What is this weakness? Jesus was weak, not just physically? Yes. Not sinful, but experiencing human weakness. Recall what Jesus said to his disciples at the time of his greatest temptation at Gethsemane. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This weakness in which Jesus can sympathize with us is the same weakness, the same word as in Romans when Paul is speaking of his and our human weakness, our natural limitations. Of you obeying Christ and being slaves to God and pursuing righteousness. And then Paul goes on to say the result of his weakness is finding himself doing the very thing he hates and doesn't want to do. So he sums up his predicament. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And at the same time saying Jesus is his only hope And this hope is because He is in Christ. He is no longer under condemnation. He belongs to Jesus. Jesus, who has experienced our human weakness and who, as we read, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears on earth. He ascended to the Father, yes, but He knows exactly what it's like. He knows we are dust. He knows we need help. So He sent the Helper, the Holy Spirit, And Jesus is right here with us by the Spirit, the one who sympathizes with our weakness. And what does Paul also say about his and our human weakness? Well, the creation, including you and me, have been subjected to futility, to frustration, as I'm sure you've noticed. So Paul says it makes us groan inside to be redeemed. So we long to be ultimately redeemed when Christ returns. But for now... We groan. And then Paul stays with this idea of weakness and groaning. He goes on to say the Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to us, that He helps us in that human weakness we all live in. We even get to the point of not knowing what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. So, we are all plagued by constant weakness that makes us end up groaning ourselves sufferings body decay sickness persecution failed plans constant indecision seeming futility of our life to make a difference but you see the God who is there is the God who has been here Jesus knows all about loud cries and tears he knows all about every type of human weakness and temptation He lived it more fully and perfectly than any human ever has or will. And now in heaven, He intercedes for us to the Father, having experienced all we humans do. He's gone away. He tells the disciples, I am going to Him who sent me. Where I am, you cannot come. I am going to the Father. I am no longer in the world. But on the other hand, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he is with us by the Holy Spirit. The Helper has come. Then Paul says to you and me, Since you are sons of God, you are led by the Spirit of God. So when Jesus walks with us, we are walking by the Spirit, so we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so also Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. All of this is not some deep theological understanding for the sake of simply being knowledgeable. This is God telling us to do hard things, to live in obedience, but to do it with, through, by, because of, and to Him. And He's saying, draw near to me and I will to you. Not just some ordinary friend, brother, or sister, but the only one that truly knows every temptation and struggle of your heart And is always for you, always loving you in every sovereign circumstance of life because you hear him call. And he calls his sheep by name. Your name, believer. Paul says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knows it's personal. Is not Jesus constantly waiting for you to come to His throne of grace to help you in time of need, your constant need that only He really knows about? I dare say that this very old American ballad is not a whiny complaint, but a vital truth that leads us to Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen Nobody knows my sorrows. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. You see, this is the reality. One can look at you and talk to you and think they know you. They think you think something like them. But I've come to realize that we really only have a small understanding Of what the psalmist calls all that is within you. What Paul calls our inner self and your inner being. When Peter says adorning our inside is more important than adorning our outside, it's what he calls the hidden person of the heart. Each of us has joys and sorrows and battles and sins in our own human hearts that no one else can really fathom or understand. We are very complicated creatures and our sinful nature takes a heavy toll. But there is one and only one alive and well who doesn't know every sin, battle, thought, longing and emotion of yours. Jesus knows and forgives and rejoices and sympathizes with you if you'll go to him like no other human can. The man Christ Jesus. Really, it's not even close. If you've ever been in that deep needy place of longing and doubting, being tempted, wondering, hurting, empty, fearful, just plain desperate to stay on His narrow path, and you've gone to Him, to Jesus, then you know He's the only one who really gets it. That's the key. Jesus is God incarnate. He's your only real hope. And when you're in time of need, He's right there all day long ready to minister, and He's the only expert in your need because He's experienced all the things we humans have. So as you grow in faith, as you succeed by Jesus' power in you, to say no to sin, to say, I will live to glorify God, I will go on living this Christian life, to walk with Jesus, you will surely sometimes become weary in doing good but stronger in God-glorifying trust. And so you walk on. And Jesus is already ahead of you, saying, follow me. I've been this way before. And He lifts you up, and in that makes you persevere through all your difficulties until the next one. I'm guessing there are some here who've been in that place, clinging to Jesus with white knuckles and Him reminding you, Of a dozen places in His Word that He is with you and will carry you to the end. And if not yet, that day will come to you, believer. You can be certain. And how we see His glory through His faithfulness. How we say, Thank you that you know exactly what human weakness is. Guy said to me, trying to appeal to pride. Your Christianity is a crutch. But my Christianity is not a crutch. If it were a crutch, that would mean I have one good leg to still walk on. But I have two weak knees and two weak legs. My Christianity is not a crutch. It's a walker. A walker that I have to lean on all day long. And if I didn't have it, I would fall flat on my face. Because Paul is correct. I am weak in my flesh. Sometimes I have wanted to pluck out my right eye and throw it away. Sometimes I have wanted to cut off my right hand and throw it away. But no. No. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. He's been there. He did it by His human will and the power of the Holy Spirit. And He says to us, I get it. I've got it. Let's do this. Just keep walking and walking and walking. My word. Remember my word. Walk. Walk. By the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and He will surely do it. So our task is to be like Jesus. To live in the obedience that comes from faith. In a broad sense, Jesus confirmed that what God did in creating humans was very good since He Himself became a human. Lived a human life. So we take up our cross and follow him. We lose our life for his sake. We do like Peter says Be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We do like Paul says Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So imitate Christ. Now let's consider this Do you have a zeal for the things of God? Are you determined to finish what the Father has called you to do? Do you have compassion for others in need? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus did all those things, and he did them perfectly. But also, do you get really angry? Do you get worn out and tired in your Christian life of doing good? Do you get rejected by people because you're a Christian? And what about your attraction to the opposite sex? Jesus endured all those things perfectly too without sin. Now, let's be practical as we think about following this man, Christ Jesus. If you ever want to know how to live your life, look at Jesus. He is the only perfect human ever. So if we look back over his life, we see these very practical things. One, As a young boy and man, he immersed himself in the scriptures, memorizing much. Do you think that served him well? Maybe? Two, he was always obedient and honoring his parents. Even while bleeding to death on the cross, he remembered to tell John to take care of his mother. Three, he was busy at work as a carpenter, living and working in total obscurity, in a tiny town, year after year after year, being faithful to what God had for him to do. Three years in ministry, but many, many, many more years than that in the wood shop. Four, battling endless temptations to sin. Five, giving his life to constantly serve and do good for the sake of others. Six, spreading the gospel when called to do so. Seven, doing only what the Father commanded him. Does this sound like a perfect pattern for a human person to follow? Does this sound like a good answer to the question, what should I do with my life? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is the perfect human in every possible way. He is the real superhero worth imitating and following. The man. Christ Jesus, the one true God, Christ Jesus. Father, thank You that You are the perfect second sinless Adam, the perfect sinless God-man, our only hope for redemption and for forgiveness. For us, sometimes the incomprehensible truth, Lord, that You are both God and man, but we rely on the truth that You have revealed to us and all our future hope is in You. You are indeed the treasure of great price, worthy of all of our life. So, Lord, do as You promise. Continue to cause us to persevere, to love Your Word, in all of its truth.